The Leadership File on Premier. Welcome to the show that helps Christians lead where God has placed them. I'm Andy Peck. I welcome back to the Leadership File Chief Superintendent John Sutherland. John has moved through the ranks of the police and served in a variety of roles, including Borough Commander at Camden and later Southwark, where he was a commander of 700 police officers. When he was last on, he shared how very blessed he was to be working in the police force. But he reached a point where he hit an emotional wall and went through a period of seven months when he was unable to work at all. When he returned to work, it was clear he could not resume the operational duties that had been part of his daily work. He charts his journey in a new book, Blue, a memoir, Keeping the Peace and Falling to Pieces. So I'm delighted he's agreed to be my guest. So, John, welcome back to the Leadership File. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, congratulations on the book. It, it is an amazing read. Uh, uh, you share the narrative of your life in the police force. Uh, the level of detail regarding incidents and people and places is extraordinary. Uh, you must have an amazing memory. It is. Uh, it's extraordinary the way the memory works. <laughs> As a frontline PC, my memory for some details was useless. <laughs> right. When I was working as the the operator in a patrol car, so alongside the driver, uh, I would always have to keep a pad and pen on my lap because I could read off the number plate of a car, uh, and unless I wrote it down, two seconds later I'd have forgotten right. it. So my memory for that kind of detail isn't great, but. But as I sat down and I began to write, I found that my memory for for stories, for people and for lives and for places was I'm almost photographic. I could remember it in extraordinary detail and not just what I'd seen, but also what I'd heard and even extraordinarily, in some cases, what I'd smelt. Um, all of the senses seem to have a, a memory of their own. Uh, I mean, you pay tribute to those you serve alongside throughout the book. Um, it's very clear you have an enormous respect for your colleagues in, in the police force. I just think that they are extraordinary people who do an extraordinary job. They're not perfect. Um, you know, we, we all have our faults and our flaws. And, uh, uh, and when it comes to policing, you know, the consequences of those faults and flaws can be particularly damaging. I think society has every right to expect higher standards of police officers than they do of anyone else as a as a consequence of the the powers that we hold and also the promises that we've made to serve without fear and without favor and there are times when police officers individually and collectively get it very wrong and the consequences of that can be hugely damaging and i don't think we should ever shy away from that reality and from acknowledging it and dealing with it but in the vast majority of cases, the vast majority of the time, my experience of the people that I've worked alongside for the last 25 years is breathtaking. They're the people who, who go where most wouldn't and who do what most couldn't. Um, one of the old commissioners used a wonderful phrase. He described them as the everyday heroes and heroines who police our streets. And I think that's exactly what they are. You um, in the book, obviously, you chart your your rise through the ranks, as it were. Um, early on, of course, the patch where Prem is located was your patch, wasn't it, Victoria area? And I think, if I'm right, your first stopping of a car was in Vauxhall Bridge Road, which is just adjacent to us here. 
Yeah, my very first day out on the beat was probably only about five or six hundred yards away from here. And it was a particularly uneventful day, but I'll always remember it because it was my first day. Mm. Um, but the first two years of my career based around here were relatively quiet, um, in policing terms at least. Um, but after two years, I, I moved to Brixton and uh, that was something else. Sure. Okay, well, we'll come on to that a little later at least the, 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 the something's else <laughs> I mean the book is beautifully written um, in the present tense you give a sense of the breathlessness of life as an officer and a commander chasing gunmen hostage negotiator facing the aftermath of bombs stabbing shootings it was like reading a script of a detective uh, drama uh, I, I guess my question was why did your emotional breakdown take so long I was exhausted reading it it's a really good question, and, and one or two other people have asked me something similar, and I, I, I don't quite know the answer, because the more I, I understand about my own journey and experience, the more I recognise the extraordinary toll that policing can take on, on those who do it. And I don't think really, as a society, never mind as policing specifically, I don't think we've really begun to understand the impact on police officers of the repeated exposure to extreme trauma. Because I think one of the things that's really important to say is, although I've been fortunate enough to be able to write it down, my experience is in no way unusual or exceptional. I, I've worked with officers who've been to many more murder scenes than me. I've worked with officers who've been much more seriously injured than me. I, I've worked alongside a PC who was shot and thank God survived. Um, I've worked with officers who have been more frequently exposed to trauma than I have. Uh, why did I break and they don't? Um, I don't know, that's part of the mystery of it all. But I do think that we're probably only just beginning to realize, and police officers themselves only really beginning to realize now, the toll that a, a life in blue can take. Um, I have a friend who was a cameraman with the BBC um, and suffered post-traumatic war syndrome from, from videoing and filming stuff, not just war, but also famine. And, and I think talking to him, one of the traumas for him was that you, you, you're a kind of bystander to what's going on. And, and you sort of talk about in the book about, you know, you give some news and then you walk away, you don't see the outcomes. And there's, you kind of, you're on to the next thing. And it's something, something happens to the soul, would you say, in those kind of... Uh, I guess I suppose one difference for a police officer from the experience of your friend is that we do have an opportunity to step in, at least to some degree. Um, the painful privilege of policing mm. uh, is to be the ones who respond to those calls. Um, the idealist in me would rather none of these horrors ever happened um, the realist in me accepts that, that they do. And given that they do, I would far rather be in a position to try to do something about it than nothing at all. But, but absolutely, the reality of operational policing life is that you only ever have so long to deal with the thing immediately in front of you because the calls just keep coming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what level of support is there for policemen and women who face these situations? It's getting better all the time. Um, I, I don't think it's yet where it should be, but it's, uh, it, it's definitely positive. I think if you go back to when I joined in the early 90s, 25 years ago, 
I think there was probably very little understood about mental health in policing. And of course, it remained very much a taboo subject in society more widely. Um, uh, and so I think it's taken us time to catch up with reality. Uh, and as I was suggesting earlier, I think we still have a way to go as a community and as a society uh, to fully understand the price that police officers pay on our behalf. You described that the pain of depression very powerfully. Um, in those moments, what what helped you? Um, initially, nothing did. I was hanging on by my fingernails. Um, I was as close to the edge as I've ever been and ever want to be. Uh, in the book, I describe it as a crisis of everything. All that I'd um, up to that point in my life been able to rely upon just failed me. So my own uh, personal qualities, my professional abilities, and, and even, uh, and I, I guess I would call it the religion that I grew up with that, that seemed to carry with it so many certainties. All of that went. Um, uh, and there were some very, very dark weeks and months where it was just a case of breathing in and out and holding on. And you described it, you said it would almost be easier to have a physical, you know, something physical wrong with you. Yeah, I, I had this sort of bizarre but very real experience of uh, at one point, and in, in fact at several points, of thinking to myself, and this will sound harsh out loud and it probably reads harshly on the page, but it's true. I sat there and I thought to myself, I wish I had cancer, not this because people understand cancer and people are sympathetic to and empathetic towards those who have cancer. And I write in the book, I might even have felt a little bit proud of myself that I was battling something and, and keeping my head up and my chin up. Um, but in my ignorance at the time, there didn't seem to be anything to be proud of. It was just bleak and hopeless. And you, you, you've spoken, I've know elsewhere of, of feeling shame. Yeah, I felt I felt shame on a number of different levels. I felt the shame of not being strong enough. I felt the shame of falling. I felt the shame of letting my colleagues down. As I said just now, the calls keep coming, and they were still taking them, and I wasn't there, doing my duty. And absolutely, at the time, I felt the shame of mental illness. I don't anymore. Yeah. We're listening to The Leadership File with me, Andy Peck. I'm joined this week by John Sutherland. John is the uh, is chief superintendent, um, including bor borough commander at Camden and later Southwark, where he was commander of 700 police officers. He's the author of the book, Blue. We'll be back just after this. Well, welcome back to The Leadership File with me, Andy Peck. I'm joined this week by John Sutherland. Uh, John is a chief superintendent within the police force. He's uh, uh, charts his journey uh, into the police force and uh, the particular trauma of uh, facing a kind of emotional brick wall um, in his book, Blue, a memoir, Keeping the Peace and Falling to Pieces. And we were talking before the break a little of, of, of John's feeling of shame when uh, kind of depression uh, attacked him and he was off uh, work for some seven months. Um, John, obviously, from a from a faith perspective, there will be there will be Christians who look on and say, "Well, 
you know, um, surely God could have intervened at this point. I'm just wondering how you square what you went through with, with, with your faith. So I don't have a wholly satisfactory answer. Mm. I mean, I, I grew up in an Anglican vicarage. I'm one of the preacher's kids. Um, uh, you know, I grew up knowing the answers to the questions in Sunday school. And I, I grew up in an environment where people seem to be certain about a lot of things. Um, I would say at the point I am in life now that I am less certain of more things than I've ever been before. Um, but one of the things that I hold on to is a belief in a God who loves us um, and in a saviour who died for us. Um, and I'll work on those two things and and let the rest remain a mystery. Sure, no, well, fair. that's a good answer. Um, uh, I mean, your blog in the book itself quotes uh, Dr. Edmund Lockhart, the forensic scientist who came up with what became known as Lockhart's exchange principle every contact leaves a trace it's a great phrase it's a principle that's true in detective work and of course a great image for the for the believer yeah so Lockhart's principle has has been a constant source of inspiration to me over the last 25 years actually uh, and it's this notion that when whenever two objects come into contact with one another an exchange takes place so I'll give you a very simple analogy. Um, picture the scene, if you will. A, uh, a thief climbs over the back garden fence uh, of a house somewhere in a neighbourhood near you uh, and in doing so leaves footprints in the flower bed, then approaches a ground floor window and breaks it, cutting himself as he does so and leaves traces of blood on the sill. As he climbs through fibres from his clothing are caught on the edges of the glass and he then leaves fingerprints everywhere inside um, uh, he makes good his escape and his number plate is captured on a CCTV camera somewhere nearby and all of those are traces that he leaves at the scene equally though there are traces from the scene that he takes with him uh, we do our job well we catch up with him quickly and you find mud from the flower bed on the bottom of his shoes and you find microscopic fragments of glass all across his clothing and if you're having a good day, you find the things that he's stolen in the back of his car. And those are traces of the scene carried by him. And as, a, as an investigating officer, if you can match those things together, the traces of the scene he carries and the traces of him left at the scene, then you're a long way towards cracking the case because every contact leaves a trace. But what's occurred to me sort of repeatedly over the years is whilst that's a clear principle for science it's also an extraordinary principle for human relationships every time two people come into contact with one another an exchange happens for better or for worse we and it applies whether it's people we've known for a lifetime or those we just encounter in passing we bless or we curse we love or we hate we're angry or we forgive we hold out a hand or we withdraw it and every contact leaves a trace yeah. no i think it's a very powerful powerful imagery um i mean some years ago i was looking at how to develop this show and wrote to you asking for your thoughts on leadership and you wrote back saying that leadership was foremost about people it's about people stupid or you quoted uh, clinton's favorite fra old phrase about the economy um and the book gives a sense that you really do try to value the police officers as people that you work with and the the wonderful feedback to your blog suggests you get a lot of things right in this regard what have you learned about leadership over, over that 25 years or so 
Um, I'm still learning. <laughs> I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert in anything. I, I'm just a man with some stories to tell. <laughs> but unequivocally, leadership in any walk of life has to be first and foremost about people. I don't think you can be a leader unless you love people. Um, you can be a bad manager, um, but that's not the same as being a good leader. Um, you know, people are not units of production. They are precious and rare and complicating and sometimes frustrating, but extraordinary. Um, and in my walk of life, in my working life, it's people who save lives and it's people who find lost children and it's people who head straight into the aftermath of terrorist attacks and place their own lives on the line. It's people, stupid. <laughs> you, you make a few wry comments about um, about numbers uh, along the way and some of the times when you've been asked to, uh, to make uh, particular targets or whatever. Um, but um, you saw some very real progress in some of your interventions, uh, notably in an estate in Southwark. So when I first got to Southwark, um, uh, it, it had the worst knife crime problem in London, uh, probably in the country. Um, there were extraordinary levels of uh, knife-related violence, knife-related robbery, um, youth violence involving knives. Uh, within a month or two of my being there, uh, a young man, Dogan Ismail, was stabbed and lost his life. And it's an issue that I feel deeply and passionately about, not just as a police officer, but also as a Londoner and as a dad. Um, you know, these are boys who could have been my sons, could have been my brothers and and were my neighbors. And uh, and I just knew that we had to do something. Um, the response to knife crime is far more complicated than people want to be. There's a short-term response and a long-term response. Uh, the passage in the book that you're referring to describes our short-term response. I, I just, I, I started briefing my officers and the really simple message I gave them was, I want you out there saving lives. Uh, and over the course of a 12-month period, we came up with a primarily an enforcement-led operation that was about stop and search, which is a controversial subject for many, um, but was about stepping out into the community and preventing harm. Um, nothing more complicated than that. Uh, and in as much as these things ever are, it, it was a success, levels of knife crime fell. Um, but police enforcement alone is not the long-term solution to something like youth violence or knife crime or indeed domestic violence and, and a number of the really complex issues that we face in society. We'll always be first in line, we the police, to respond, and we always should be. And I'm immensely proud of the fact that we are. Um, but if we're going to resolve these things, then we need to take a much longer term view. And we need to recognise and understand that the police are only one part of the jigsaw. Knife crime, for example, is a whole society problem that demands a whole society solution. John, we're coming to the end, sadly, of our, of our conversation, but I do need, from a listener's point of view, to kind of resolve the, you know, you had the emotional brick wall, you, you had seven months off work or so. What, what kind of brought you back and, and uh, you know, what's, what's for the future in terms of life and work? So uh, three very practical things that have helped me to mend and to stay 
reasonably well. Um, the first is learning how to rest. Uh, sounds like an obvious, simple thing to say, but we we live in a culture that is moving faster than is good for any of us. Um, I think it was Gandhi who said, there's more to life than increasing its speed. Uh, but I don't think anyone was listening. <laughs> uh, and out of necessity, I have had to learn to slow down um, and to rest. That would be the first very practical thing. Second thing is I, I take medication. One of the first things I did when I woke up this morning was to take an antidepressant. And I'm not in the least bit ashamed of that. Um, and frankly, we just need to get over it. Uh, it doesn't work for everybody, but it's been very helpful for me. And for as long as it remains helpful, I'll keep on doing it. Uh, and the third thing is I see a counsellor. Um, she's wonderful. I've been seeing her for the last four years. And again, I'll continue to do that for as long as I need to. Just really simple, practical steps. Um, on a more personal level, I would say that the, the, the three things that have mattered most have, have been a simple combination of faith and family and friends. It's an old fashioned thing, but but love is what's mattered most of all. Sure, sure. Um, in terms of uh, the next stage for you, I mean... Well, I, th I think, I don't know for sure yet, I think I'm coming towards the end of my time in policing uh, slightly earlier than I'd anticipated and, and health is the reason for that. Um, but I feel very peaceful about what the future may bring. Uh, I do believe that, that ultimately all things work together for good. Um, uh, it seems an extraordinary thing to have written a book. Um, I would love to carry on writing, uh, maybe carry on speaking, coaching, mentoring. Uh, I don't know. I will look forward to the next bit of the adventure. Excellent. Well, it's great that great you come through the other end and you're able to speak so candidly about um, about your experiences. Some people will be, you know, itching to get a copy of the book. It's actually, as we record it, it's being um, launched tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's May, out May on out on the 25th of May, uh, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. And available, I hope, in all good bookshops. All good bookshops and on, on Amazon, no doubt. So um, it's, it's an enormous joy to, um, you know, to, to chat with you. Thank you for, for sharing. As I shared before our interview, it, it moved me deeply, uh, partly because I've known you for many decades, but, um, but I think you, you captured, captured the essence of policing and said so much in that book and shared your own story. And this is going to be an enormous help to people, I'm sure. So thank you so much. Thank you. So you're listening to the Leadership File with me, Andy Peck. I was joined this week by uh, John Sutherland. John is the is Chief, Chief Superintendent John Sutherland, who'd served within the police force. And his book, again, is Blue, uh, colon, a memoir, Keeping the Peace uh, and Falling to Pieces. It's got a great cover. So you must even look at it just for the cover. Uh, some wonderful cover design. So um, it's been my privilege to, to have John on the show today. Uh, you can get archived versions of the Leadership Fly, get this one on demand by going to Premier's website. And then if you go to iTunes, you can uh, sign up to iTunes and uh, download uh, leadership files from, uh, I think it's about 100 or so there. So um, do um, avail yourself of that uh, opportunity. Um, and if you have ideas of, of guests um, or topics you'd like me to cover on the leadership file, then again, do email me apec at cwr.org.uk and I'd be happy to consider um, the, the person or topic for future shows. So I look forward to your company again next Sunday at 3.30. Thanks for tuning in. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to The Leadership File on Premiere. Andy Peck serves as a tutor at CWR, a Christian charity whose courses and publications aim to apply God's Word to everyday life. Contact him via email apeck at cwr.org.uk. Thank you.